the whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching the outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hey, this is Bryant Arnold, also known as Dragon from Skinwalker Ranch, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast for the final show of the year. My name is Andy, and I've got a very exciting guest with me on the podcast to round off 2020, which I'm sure most of us are happy to see the back of. Um, just before that, just want to say thank you to everyone who has listened along this year. I will be posting very shortly on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and on the Patreon account some details of the shows coming up in January. Going to have another roundtable on the go, and already Jeremy McGowan and Sean Cahill have jumped on board with that one, and Dan will be joining me, my regular co-host, as usual for that, so look out, and I'll announce soon what that one's going to be on. Got another couple of guests in the pipeline that I, will again, will very soon confirm with you on dates. And there are two more shows still to release. The Room 101 Part 2 should just have come out before this interview drops on Friday the 31st of December. And afterwards, the compilation show will be out the week after. I feel a bit cheeky doing one of those compilation shows, but I know everyone does it at some point to get a week off. So um, the wife and the kids are calling folks. But yeah, the compilation show is going to be off the different quick fire rounds from the first 10 guests that appeared on the podcast as well. But without further ado, um, another anniversary has just occurred, and it was the 40th anniversary of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Uh, to discuss that with me, I have an investigative journalist, author, and lecturer. He was a former curator and consultant of the MOD's UFO files in the UK's National Archives. I've got Dr. David Clark. David, how are we? Uh, fine, thanks, Andy. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, this is uh, it is it is quite uh, it's been quite a year, hasn't it? And it's strange it that this <laughs> uh, things just constantly get stranger. And if of all the years oh, yes. to talk about aliens uh, as much as they have been talked about, it's funny that aliens aren't really that high up on the what strange events have occurred over the course yeah. of the year throughout the planet. We're almost ready for them at the end of the year. Yeah. But uh, I'm sick of hearing about COVID-19, so I think it's uh, it's good that we have other distractions as well. Yeah, COVID-20 is all the age mm. about. <laughs> but about yeah, COVID-20. Yeah. yeah. Um, but listen, um, 40th anniversary of Rendlesham has just passed. And uh, as it was mentioned by myself on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram and whatnot, I really wanted to do a piece on Rendlesham, not just repeating back the incidents that happened walking through the night it's been done, on so many different podcasts, documentaries, there's been, you know, movies made, uh, Shadows of Your Mind magazine that I, I like to plug regular because uh, Dave's a friend of the show, has done a really good piece that actually has a timeline of the events over those couple of nights as well. And I would encourage people who want to know the details to go and read um, Shadows of Your Mind magazine. Um, it's in the issue number nine. It's just came out. It starts on page 61. I can tell you that as well. Really good detailed piece there that talks you through the events, who was involved, what happened, um, 
So yeah, please check that out. And I'm referring back to that for the podcast as well. So if anything goes wrong here, I'm blaming it on Dave Partridge. So yeah. And uh, Dave, yourself, your own podcast. Uh, sorry, you were on UFO Lore hosting with uh, John Burroughs, who was involved uh, in the Rendlesham incident himself, and Jenny Randalls, who yep. is a bit of an expert on the subject. And that was just recently on UFO Lore. So I would, again, implore people to to check that out too. Yeah, when well, we it took some uh, persuading to get Jenny to come on board because uh, as people will probably know she's she sort of left ufology many about a decade ago or longer because she was a full time carer for a mum, and she was one of the best known ufologists in the UK back in the nineties. But um, she's shed very little on the subject recently. And please, what did you discuss on the podcast for the listeners then? UFO lore with John um, and Jenny. Well, it was just it was a just a general discussion about all the sort of where we stand with Rendlesham after on the fortieth anniversary. Now I think it was it's the first time that Jenny had actually had um a chance to talk to John Burroughs since she saw him, I think, in nineteen eighty eight, all that time ago, the last time she sort of met him in Arizona, I think, to UFO conference. So it was almost like an on online um, sort of, um, you know, sort of meet-up between the two of them, with me sort of like acting as the go-between. It was a fascinating discussion. Uh, listen, a little bit of e-harmony on the go, not to plug dating websites that don't uh, sponsor <laughs> the podcast, but, you know, but yeah, no, it, it was good, and I'd click through it and kind of research and for this as, this as well. So the, the more information that's out there on the subject, listening to different people's opinions, but it's great to have you on to discuss it with myself. So we'll be discussing some of the highlights of the event, um, some new information that you've just published on your blog on the 26th of December, I believe it was, over yep. at drdavidclark.co.uk, and that is Clark with an E. I'll be putting the links for those in the bio of the show as well. Um, but listen, uh, Dave, 40 years now and counting, why has Rendlesham endured for so many as a standout case, in your opinion? Simply because uh, it's got everything. I mean, it's, 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 it's got military involvement. It's got supposedly high-level sort of um, cover-ups. It's got, um, you know, official documents. It's got uh, an American involvement as well on British soil. And in some sort of ways, although it's a good case, I do feel a bit sort of um, resentful about the fact that he's pushed all the other really interesting cases and incidents from the British Isles off the table. You know, you only ever hear about Rendlesham now, whereas in the past it used to be, you know, the, I mean, we've, we've just passed the 40th anniversary of the Alan Godfrey case, um, which you'll, 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 you'll know about. You know, the, the police officer, this is just a month before Rendlesham, um, the guy who was driving around Todmorden in West Yorkshire looking for some uh, missing cows, and this flying saucer thing appeared in front of him, blast of light, lost a period of time. Fascinating case. But that anniversary just passed hardly without, without a squeak. You know, there was nothing about it, as far as I could see, uh, online. Um, so, so although Rendlesham is, is really, really interesting, I do feel a bit sad that there are lots and lots of other lesser-known, far more evidential cases, in my uh, opinion, that hardly ever get a mention now because of the fact that Rendlesham has effectively taken over as it's often been called Britain's Roswell, hasn't it? Well, yeah, I was going to say that that was the tagline. It's Britain's Roswell, but do you think then it's the you've you've mentioned the military aspect, but the fact it was the U.S. military that was involved, so that that connection from across the Atlantic has kept it not only alive here but over there, so it, it kind of brings it to the forefront. Absolutely, and I think um, you know, you know, in the USA where you've got the Roswell incident and, it, and all those sorts of um, the Area Fifty One connection, they're all in the sort of the mysterious sort of um, the desert areas, you know, the, the, where people go and have these weird encounters with 
you know the other world or whatever you want to call it or aliens or as they see it and and the british isles is a tiny tiny place isn't it compared to to um to the usa mainland north america but what we do have our equivalent of those mysterious sort of desert desert areas where the ufo's crash and people have these encounters in america we've got the mysterious forests you know and this is where my interest is in folklore comes in because you know if you go back into mythology and legend and things that's where people had weird experiences in the past you know they'd go into the forest and you know they'd meet creatures from the, the other world or ghosts or spirits or etc and i just think it's interesting that britain's roswell happened in one of those mysterious areas this area of sort of mysterious forest in east anglia do you think that's to do with the fact though that if you were up in, up in the atmosphere and you dropped a probe down on top of britain you would likely hit either a massive expansive field or or forest just given the way the country's laid out and conversely with the us as well if you dropped a probe from space the likelihood is you would hit desert and that's that's just what what you'd probably hit because so much of it is uninhabited so do you think it's just potentially the likelihood because if something is visiting or you know experiments are being done whatever it's going to be and we'll get to that it's because these are the the most likely areas to be for it to happen well, that depends if you're approaching it from the point of view of these things coming from somewhere else and dropping probes. You know, I, I think these things come from us, not from someone else. And as you mean, literally humans. Humans, yep. This is, and we'll, we'll get to that aspect of yeah. it as well. Which for me, I've always made the point that as much as it's that UFO podcast, for many of these cases, whether it's Roswell. You know, Rendlesham, Phoenix Lights, you know, whatever they may be, there's there's thousands and thousands of documented cases. If it is our tech in any of them, there's still a lot of really fascinating questions that come up, up as part of that. And Absolutely. That, so yeah. for me, I'd, I'm not one of those that it's not aliens, to put it bluntly, so I'm not interested. It's okay. So yeah. what happened? What's the technology? Where did it come from? And mm. And that's something that even you look at Luella Zondo, something he talks about on a regular basis is, you know, there there are questions to come up from these different cases that are that are happening all, all around the world. So um, as much as we said, we're not going to talk about uh, Rendlesham, a few of the American listeners particularly mentioned they didn't know much about it. And I suppose we just assume, given it's, it's Britain's UFO case, that, that they're going to know the same. So um, do you mind giving a very quick recap, David, of, uh, of Rendlesham and, and what sort of happened there? Yeah, and I, I'm going to use um, this little chronology here. I know we, we don't want to go into it in great detail, um, but I think the best chronology of what happened you can find on Ian Ridpath's uh, web, website. And I know he's a notorious skeptic, and we, we won't get go down the uh, the, the Orford Nest Lighthouse uh, Avenue for, uh, <laughs> unless you really want to. I think he's he's got it nailed here because he's he's bro- broken it down into five different um, short things about what actually happened at Rendlesham. And the whole thing was triggered off by a group of security guards seeing bright lights dropping into Rendlesham Forest at 3 a.m. on Boxing Day, 1980. And we know what that was. There is absolutely no doubt about it. It was a bright fireball because it was seen by astronomers right across the British Isles at exactly that time. So the whole thing that triggered this off was something that we that is explicable. So and that's, by, that's, by fireball, just to clear up as well, nothing ET in your opinion no. from that point of view. This is something that's like space rock, basically, yeah, they, whatever's they, they, coming 
they come in all the time. In fact, I, I was just looking on my mobile phone, I think it was yesterday, um, and there was a story from East Anglia about what was the mysterious object that people saw burning up in the atmosphere over Suffolk on Christmas Day. And it was a bright fireball. And various people had phoned into the police saying they'd seen this thing. Um, and an astronomer, there's a picture of him with his camera, and he said, I know what it was because I saw it myself. It was a bright fireball, which is a piece of you know dust or whatever from outer space burning up in the atmosphere, causes a trail of sparks. And I know from long experience, 30 years um, investigating UFOs, it, this is a familiar description that people see these things. And quite often they think that they're actually seeing an aircraft on fire or in distress that's dropping from the sky, disappearing over the horizon. And that's exactly what um, the security guards said that they saw at two at 3 a.m. on Boxing Day in 1980. So either if you believe that aliens are involved, then the, did the aliens know that a piece of dust was about to burn up in the atmosphere at exactly that time? and thought, right, that's the moment. That's when we'll drop into Rendlesham Forest. Is that well, likely, do you think? Well, I remember one of the famous cults ever <laughs> believed that a UFO was or an alien spacecraft was behind Halley's Comet in the nineties, well, and uh, famously all topped themselves, didn't they, to hitch a ride on it? So you know, it's it's not uh, the first time I've heard that. But but, but however, the key thing the key thing here is if those security guards hadn't seen that bright fireball drop and, and they thought it was an aircraft on fire or in distress, that's why they went into the forest. So if they had been looking at the ground at that moment rather than looking into the sky, there wouldn't have been a Rendlesham Forest incident because they would never have gone to look to investigate it. So before we go back to that, because that <laughs> that uh, path of thinking leads to very much one explanation on the rest of it, okay? But mm. for the, the story that yeah, has the story. For maybe the more theatrical, not yeah. theatrical, but the one that's best known, shall we say? Well, the, se the second thing that happened then is, having seen this thing drop into the forest, they then went into the forest to investigate, having got permission from the um, whoever it was in the USAF base. Um, and that's where it becomes mysterious. And to me, it's almost like um, the Blair Witch Project. You know, you've got a group of guys in a forest, pitch black, freezing cold. I mean, you like it is now. We're talking very similar weather conditions 40 years ago. Um they're in an unfamiliar place. They're in the middle of the night. Um, they're in a foreign country. These are 20, 30, 20, 18, 19, 20-year-old guys in a foreign country, probably thinking, oh, my God, you know, I wish I could go back to Arizona or wherever it was they were from. Um, they've seen this thing apparently drop into the forest. They go into the trees, and that's then. It's almost like um, they go into the world of Oz. You know, something happens. And this is the bit which I find interesting and i, ha I, I have to ask then just before we get to the oz part and we see the wizard yeah. and discuss yeah. the wizard uh taking a step back and i'll, I'll yeah. play devil's advocate here because i can oh. imagine this is what people would be wanting me to ask you if i have an interest in ufos and aliens mm. anything i see in the sky that i cannot instantly explain or i'm hoping i'm hoping to see a flying saucer a triangle yeah. i'm hoping to see a, an orb anything that's you know alien related okay but if i am an astronomer I am looking into the sky with the idea that I'm going to see satellites, I'm going to see space debris, I'm going yep. to see the ISS passing overhead, whatever it might be. So you're looking with different perspectives and you expect to see one or the other potentially or hopefully. What's yep. to say um, anyone who was looking at the sky that night through telescopes, binoculars, seeing a fireball come in didn't misidentify a potential object of unknown origin coming in that wasn't a piece of dust? 
Good point. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing we should mention is there was all sorts of stuff going on in the sky. It wasn't just the fireball. that at, I think it was at 10 to 10 the night before, which would have been Christmas Day night. Mm-hmm. There was a part of a Soviet Cosmos rocket body that burnt up in the atmosphere. And this was tracked, seen by aircraft, reported to Heathrow Airport and followed by radar. So just a few hours before this fireball, this incredible display that was caused by this rocket body burning up over southern England uh, was also seen by dozens of people, and it's in the MOD files. There's there's a whole um, collection of sightings reported by people. And I think the interesting thing is, when did that um, sighting get reported? And I've got here cuttings from The Sun, from the Daily Express, published on December the 27th, saying that a UFO had been seen burning um, in the sky over southern England on Christmas Day. Now, December the 27th is interesting because that is the day that Charles Holt and his team then went out in the forest with the Geiger counter. And I think you've got to take all of these contextual things um, into account when you sort of understand what happened at Rendlesham because there wasn't one thing that happened. There was a whole series of things. And I think it's quite interesting to sort of – we've talked about that first – thing where the, where the three guys went into the forest yeah. John Burroughs one of them now the, the expedition with Charles Hull was two nights after that on the night of the 27th early hours of the 28th mm-hmm. and it always intrigues me as to why should we why should why should it necessarily be the case that what was seen whatever it was on Boxing Day was the same thing that was seen two nights later why couldn't it have been two completely different things because once people are aware that something is there that's unusual or extraordinary, and Charles Holt says this himself, you know, the rumors were going wild on the base. People were going out into the forest looking for UFOs. And so when you, when you think there's something odd to be found, you'll find it. And, and well, that's, it, at that's, it. that's exactly what happened. Because after that first night, when they went back to the, to the place where they thought this UFO had landed in the forest, what did they find? They found marks on the ground. They found what they thought were burn marks on the trees and markings on the trees, et cetera, et cetera. And they interpreted those things in the context of what they'd seen in the forest the night before. And would we be assuming along those lines then that was that the Soviet satellite that had come down? or Because it it didn't come down. It was seen in the sky over southern England. But... You see, it's it's easy for us talking 40 years later. In hindsight, we know that that was a Soviet satellite. We know it didn't come down. It just burnt up in the atmosphere. But if you were one of those guys in the forest 40 years ago, you wouldn't know that. All you would know is that there was a rumor going around the base that a UFO had landed. You'd buy, um, you'd probably pop, pop into Ipswich and you'd get a, a, a copy of the Sun and you'd read about all these sightings of a UFO over southern England. You wouldn't know it was a Soviet satellite. So where I suppose my interest then peaks, uh, in your opinion, is that on that second you know, uh, expedition to the to the woods to see what was happening. Um, yeah. Only Jim Pennison and John Burroughs made it to the point where they actually have reported seeing That's a true. triangular craft, which they describe as three feet by three feet with um, glyphs or symbols on the craft as well. So I would like you to well, come in at that point. Let me stop you there because John Burroughs doesn't say that. Only Jim Penniston says he saw a craft. If you talk to John Burroughs now, as I did on that podcast, all he saw was lights. Didn't see a craft. Only so John Burroughs obviously was the famous approach to craft. 
um, as he says. But uh, so no, my, Jim, understanding... my understanding is Jim Peniston is the one that sorry, says yeah, saw yeah, an yeah sorry, apologies. Yeah, so Jim Peniston was the one that approached. Um, depending on, and this is something I have over the years, but it's again forty years of time, and people's brains change, and stories naturally change, don't they? That different perspectives of the story have come out, and things have changed slightly over time. So, uh, exactly. Jim, Jim Peniston exactly. approached what he says as a craft. In your opinion, is Jim Peniston being untruthful then, because that doesn't fit in with? I don't know. I, I, th- I think he had an experience with something in the forest but i think i think we need to get away from this thing about um are they telling the truth or are they not telling the truth i think it's quite possible for someone to have some kind of extraordinary experience and then in the years after it has happened to them when they're constantly being asked to sort of go on tv um to talk to um authors and journalists about what it is anyone knows what you just from your own experience if you were telling if you were repeating a some a story about something odd and extraordinary that had happened to you decades ago and you're constantly repeating it it's inevitable almost like a um chinese whispers that you're going to exaggerate you're going to try and tell the story in a more elaborate way this is this is storytelling at the end of the day you know people who, who tell stories for a living they they elaborate on things and, and it's almost like it's it's like the fisherman's tale about the one that got away you know and and, and this is what i find fascinating about these people who were undoubtedly there and something happened to them if you look at what they actually said happened to them at the time we go back here to colonel holt's memo we go back to the handwritten statements that the that john burroughs jim peniston and the others gave to charles holt and i know there's a whole controversy there about them being told to write stuff that they didn't actually say but john burroughs actually does to this day says that his handwritten statement that's in that collection is um genuine he did write it no one forced him to write that so there's many different interpretations of it. What I'm trying to say is what they said in those statements at the time is completely different to what they're now saying. And that goes for Colonel Holt as well. You know, the, the number of elaborations and exaggerations and extra little bits that's been ad- added on, you know, this whole binary code nonsense that was never mentioned at the time. <coughs> the, the, you know, it, it, it's, a lot of it also is completely contradictory. There's, there's all these things that people who say, oh, yeah, you know, this, there ought to be congressional hearings and there ought to, people ought to be able to give evidence about this in, in court. I mean, if you got those three guys in, in a congressional hearing, John Burroughs, Jim Peniston and Colonel Hall, the, whoever it was who was cross-examining them would just throw, his, throw their arms up. They'd just say, well, none of what you're telling me adds up because it's all completely contradictory. Something I've mentioned recently on the podcast is that I feel... For me personally, three years ago with the US government, the US Navy's videos coming out of the gimbal, the go fast, the tic-tac, I feel at that point, personally, I've drawn a line in ufology where, okay, we've got some recent cases here. Here's some things that happened in the 2000s. We've got video evidence, government video evidence, not saying that ET craft, you know, regardless what I've said, my opinion is in the past. We've got something on video. Maybe it's time to move past Roswell and Rendlesham and Phoenix Lights and all these things that it's happened too long ago now that we need to start focusing on these incidents that are literally happening Mm. not only 16 years ago but they're happening as far as we can sort of make out now from what's coming out last week and a few months ago and you know in very very recent memory 
But it depends on on what you find interesting about the subject. You see, I find the elaboration of the stories and um, the way that they've grown and they've become more and more sort of elaborate and ET orientated, etc. So that's what I find interesting because I'm interested in narratives, people's stories, and how people's stories develop over time. I'm not interested in whether there are aliens there or not. I, I, if it was the Jolly Green Giant, it wouldn't bother me. I, I'm, I'm just interested in extraordinary stories that people tell. And people have been telling extraordinary stories like this ever since they've been humans. People who, who reckon they've met mermaids and angels and stuff like that. You, you can find loads and loads of examples dating back hundreds, thousands of years. And to me, the stories that are told by people from Rendlesham are no different. They are stories. There's no, there's no evidence of anything. Absolutely fair. On the let, let's go with the traditional Rendlesham story because that's what they all are. Yeah. Given there's yeah. no video evidence, which is ultimately what exactly. you need in any any of these cases and anything we talk about, um, they all all end up being lights in the sky or very distant, fast moving objects at range that we can't really explain. The rest of it we fill in with different information and data that that comes to hand. So, uh, uh, would you say in that traditional story? there was any craft of an unknown origin involved to be to be to be give you a completely honest answer i have absolutely no idea how would i know that look looking through the different uh statements then like you say because you're someone who has obviously looked into it more than more than most i mean more mm. than myself i'm someone who uh, not necessarily take things at face value or do a bit of digging but like you say and in, in the story itself there's a romance to that that while this US military base, you know, out in the middle of the woods in England had this UFO encounter over a couple of nights and there was some lights and then one of the guys touched the craft and depending on different stories, he did or didn't touch it. Different, mm. sto- I mean, I, rem- I remember once reading, I, I, might, I might even seen it. This is one of these things that it may be like an example of exaggerating or misremembering over time. I remember watching Strange But True on on sky one as a kid great great series yeah yeah but i'm sure one of the stories was a was very similar if not rendlesham being retold and bear in mind i would have been seven or eight years old Mm. but that one of them touched a craft and had gifts afterwards and it talked about people getting basically powers and you know telekinesis and all these sorts of Mm. things and that's the sort of embellishment that can happen but the, but the thing is, you know, a good question is, why did Charles Hall take a Geiger counter out with him on, on the night that he went? What? Why did he connect UFOs with radiation? And the only explanation is, is that he'd been watching TV programs about UFOs and aliens. And, and in fact, the second edition of Close Encounters of the Third Kind had just been released and was actually showing in the local cinema in Ipswich at the time. Are you telling me that none of those American airmen had been to see it and be, were influenced by what they'd seen on there? And and also there's this huge thing about it being so important, this case, because, because of the military witnesses. And this is what I find fascinating. There is this cult of the military that a lot of people who are into UFOs buy buy into. And it's like, because someone is an ace fighter pilot and because someone is a, a colonel in the US Air Force, that somehow that makes them a better witness to UFOs. Well, all the evidence suggests that is not the case. I mean, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who I think most people would recognize as, as a, a really um, one of the key people in UFO history, he had access to all the, the Blue Book files. And if you read the UFO experience, he actually says that military witnesses are very, very make very, very poor witnesses, particularly um, pilots. He says that himself, having been through hundreds and hundreds of case studies. And if you look at the Rendlesham case itself, although, yes, there were military witnesses, it, 
what was actually seen, the, I mean, apart from Jim Penniston, we're talking about lights in the sky. It's actually no different to, to the vast majority of UFO incidents that are reported by ordinary people. And when we look at the, the, the sightings that are made by ordinary people, and I think regardless of whether you think I'm a skeptic, debunker, uh, closed-minded, whatever you want to think of me, I think most UF, ufologists of any persuasion will, will accept that the vast majority of UFO incidents, 90-odd percent, 95%, when they're investigated properly, have got a very down-to-earth explanation. And I don't see why the Rendlesham case is any different to all the others, because it, it involves exactly the same thing, lights in the sky. And we know, for example, that what triggered it all off was a piece of, um, you know, it was a fireball meteor that actually people thought were dropping into the forest. And I will always agree on that most of these sightings, reportings are are something that can be explained away. Um, I, I remember being on a, a tall ship um, expedition when I was in school. That was We were picked through secondary school and uh, we're out in the middle of the North Atlantic or whatever it was up before Denmark and Sweden you would get there around the top of the UK and just out on deck incredible skies beautiful to look at and I just remember one of the boys tapping me on the shoulder and saying have you ever seen a UFO and I was I had actually at that point and I was like well yeah but he was like do you want to see another one and he pointed up and it was just this really high up in the sky this little triangle of lights cruising along but as it got in at first there's that heart stopping drop where you're like oh my god that but then as it gets a bit further away you see it's the tail light of the plane starts blinking and you can as your eyes adjust you can just make out the wings but for for five to ten seconds there was a little triangle floating along in the sky at whatever altitude it was going to be at and how many people would look at that and instantly bang and even even now something i've seen quite recently was there's you see planes coming in uh, near runways in northumberland and they can almost look like they're hovering when, when yeah. they're coming in because they're because of the speed they're going at for whatever reasons uh, aviation experts would be able to explain it better than me and for a second you can misidentify that as something that it's not absolutely and and the, the idea that military witnesses can't possibly be fooled it, all the evidence suggests otherwise and and there are, I've, I've spoken to numerous pilots who who, who say that in fact uh, there was one uh, American pilot who was based at RAF Bentwaters in the 1950s who emailed me, giving this long account because there was a there was a similar case um, in, involving radar trackings that, that you, some of your listeners will probably heard of the Lake and Heath Bentwaters case from 1956, and he was one of the pilots who was actually scrambled um, to investigate this thing, and he said he chased after it in this um, in his in his fighter, the uh, the current one was an F86 or something, and it turned out that what he was chasing was a, was a star. And this is this is a, a Top Gun fighter pilot, you know. So so the idea that pilots can't possibly make a mistake, and that if they scrambled to investigate something, it's got to be some object from outer space, just isn't borne out by the evidence. I think where a lot of it, and for me, why I would put more weight, I suppose, in a in a military witness, not all of them, but certain it depends on the context, of course, but is the stereotype that has always gone from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s even of UFO witnesses are either hicks out in backwater of America or some crazy Englishman spouting that he saw, you know, he was abducted. Just that people seem so out there. But every one of these cases, given the nature of what's being discussed, it's all out there. It's all crazy sounding because the very nature of what we're discussing 
And I like what it always says, it only takes one of these to be right, but so far we haven't proven one to be the case that involved an ET spacecraft or interdimensional spacecraft, and that's ultimately what we're well, most of us are working towards trying to find out. You never you're never gonna find evidence for that. That's my prediction. Because and and it's like isn't isn't it just interesting in itself in that people have these experiences and that they tell these stories? That's I, I think if I think and I've been involved in this subject now ever since being a teenager. And I've got to say that if you, if your whole interest in the subject is proving that we've been visited by creatures from other worlds or other dimensions, eventually you're going to either head off into some kind of cultish, religious sort of belief in those things because you can't ever find the evidence. It's a bit like, how do we prove that God exists? You can't. You either believe in it or you don't. And and this is where there's a similarity between UFO beliefs and religious beliefs. Um, so you're either going to go down that cult road or that religious road, or you eventually at some point in your quest, you're going to realize that you're never going to get the evidence that you're looking for because it's not there. And I'll come to that in a little bit once we move on from Rendlesham. Uh, I do have that as a follow-up. But, um, but in terms of military witnesses, you've got really good – you've got this thing about there being good witnesses, but it's you've still – what you're basing your, your, your conclusions on are people's stories. And just one little aside from, from the Rendlesham thing. You know when um, Colonel Holt was out there watching these lights in the sky, he had a little – walkie-talkie with him and you can actually hear him talking on his famous tape yep. where he's, he's patching a, a call through to RAF Bentwater's tower and he's saying can you contact Eastern Radar can you see can they see anything on uh, on on the radar now Eastern Radar was the the, the nearest um, air defense this is the RAF our, the the air defense radar station jointly operated with civil aviation authority so he was patched through to the radar station there and i've actually spoken to the radar operator Derek Coombe who was on duty that night remembers colonel holt calling and he says i was sat at my radar display i was looking to see if there was anything unusual on the scope there was absolutely nothing there and the the holt kept coming back asking, can you see anything? Can you see anything? There was nothing on radar. At the same time, Holt was also talking to his boss. Don't forget, Holt was not the base commander. He was the deputy base commander. The base commander was a guy called Ted Conrad, who I've also interviewed. And he was actually standing outside his house with a bunch of other security police officers talking to Holt on the on his on his um, two-way communication. Holt hardly ever mentions this, but this is what happened. And he was talking to Holt in the forest and he was saying, can you see the lights that I can see? And they were looking in the same direction, 360 degree field of view, couldn't see anything. How do you explain that? Nothing on radar. They couldn't and and nothing could be seen on radar. Holt seeing these lights, no doubt about it, he was seeing something. And also, he was talking to his boss, who was only a few miles away on RAF Bentwaters with a bunch of other senior officers. They were looking in exactly the same direction that Holt was looking. Couldn't see anything either. So I wouldn't ask you to come back on these necessarily because these are just, again, things that the... I'm, this if, is what if, I'm throwing if, in. If, if I was a guest on my own podcast here, here's what I would say back to that. I would do one of my roundtables. First one, nothing on radar. It's, it's a classic thing in ufology that these things don't necessarily appear on radar all the time so that, that could easily if you're going to throw out that there was nothing there then do you know what maybe there was but it wasn't on radar 
potentially. The other one, though, is you hear often, and I don't think this is what happened in this case, and I'm really open-minded with, with any of these cases, but potentially just because one person sees one thing doesn't mean people at a distance are seeing the same thing. And there, there are a lot me. of experiences that come up. And that's a very yeah. hard notion of the whole of ufology and any experiences to really buy into for anyone, particularly people who may be outside the subject that you can both be looking. It's like the, the old, you know, we're both looking at the colour blue, but we see two different things. But coming back against that, he said that these things were visible for a long period of time. Now, even though that part of Suffolk is pretty rural, there's an awful lot of people who live in that area, and we're not far from a very large city called Ipswich. If those things were hovering there, uh, shooting down beams of light, and I know there, I know people will say, oh, well, there were lots of locals who said that they'd seen things. Yeah, saw lights in the sky, but it was a, an active military base. It could, they could have seen anything flying in and out. Um, it does seem odd to me that aliens would come across vast distances just to hover there for Colonel Holt's um, viewing and nothing would be seen on radar and nothing would be seen by his boss Ted Conrad who was standing a few miles away and should have been able to see whatever it was Colonel Holt was seeing. So in your opinion then because do you know what you've, you've given me some new information and facts there and no doubt that'll be new for a lot of other people as well which I really appreciate especially in these older cases but it can be very easy to stop looking into the details and you just follow the narrative. The devil here's, here's is in the happened. detail. The devil is in the detail. It absolutely is. Uh, in your opinion then, just in your opinion, not that it's right mm. or wrong, what what did happen on those evenings? Like you've said, it potentially could have been different events that just ha- seemed to happen one after another. You've answered your own question. Lots of different things happened and that people link them all together in a UFO sort of context afterwards. And so, I think that there is this idea that there is such a thing as a UFO that is separate, that, you know, that you can eliminate all the usual things, you know, such as, you know, bright planets, meteors, balloons, and that once you've gas, eliminated yeah. all that, you've left with this thing called a UFO. Well, that is a, that doesn't make any sense at all. All those things are UFOs. We only know that they're not UFOs when we've, we we can say for definite that something isn't. But in, in it, unless you can eliminate all those things very, very quickly, there's always going to be an you, – you can't prove a negative. You can't prove – I can't prove that aliens visited Suffolk in December 1980. I wouldn't even try. And I think there's also that discussion and debate around when we say UFO – it's, is it, are you literally talking about unidentified flying objects, which could be me throwing a a saucer across the sky? A saucer's yeah. probably a bad word to use, but I meant an actual saucer, uh, not a spacecraft. Or are you talking, which most people associate it with, it's an alien spacecraft or yeah. governmental craft flying that you know is 100 years in advanced technology? Well, can I just throw something else into the mix Please, here? Yeah. This, this, you know, I did all the work at the National Archives and I spent yes. absolutely ages combing through all the records there. Here is something. I'm just going to read this to you. This is from the Operations Record Book at RAF Woodbridge in December 1946. 1946. This is December, same sort of time of year. This is what it actually says in the rec- – in the. this is the logbook. This is when the RAF were running that base just after the Second World War. 22nd of December 1946, at 20.12 hours, a request was made by the U.S. Army Air Force at Woodbridge to search the Orford Ness area for an aircraft in distress. 
A flash and a fire were reported by the Woodbridge Tower at approximately 260 degrees and eight miles from Orford Nest Lighthouse. An aircraft was diverted by the flying officer um, RAF 11 group to the scene of the suspected air crash. We were later informed that although the flash was unidentified, it did not involve an actual aircraft. So again, you're reporting there's an unidentified object. In exactly the same place, reported by Woodbridge Tower in 1946. What would Doesn't your conclusion, not... conclusion, if any, be there? Just that these events can happen, but don't necessarily have to have an otherworldly explanation. Yes, and that they've been going on since ever. You know, that there's nothing special about um, the fact that it's a military base. It's just, it's the geography. It's the the fact that lots of unusual things happen in the sky over that area. It's very flat, and there are lots of different sources of what could be these UFOs. In that case, it was probably something similar, you know, like a fireball that was burning up. And again, the interesting thing is they thought it was an aircraft crashing into the forest. It's so history I... repeating itself. To bring it back to, and you sort of mentioned this earlier, just to, to summarise, you're not sure what happened necessarily uh, in the, some of its parts that evening. You don't necessarily think it was anything necessarily ET. Um, would you even suspect it was something that it was another military? And this is something listener questions will come up later on. But was it the US military technology? Was it any sort of technology in your opinion? No. Was, no? I don't, actually. <laughs> I think... I, I think Every little aspect of it can be explained, but I know that people won't accept those explanations. But the fact remains that, as we know, as we've just discussed, in the vast majority of UFO cases, um, there is an ex there is an ordinary explanation. And just just a few, just this is an interesting quote that I found in the Ministry of Defence files. This is like a briefing that this guy was giving. Um, to the RAF about he'd been dealing with UFO cases for many, many years. And he said that the vast majority of UFO experiences are the result of something ordinary seen in unusual circumstances or something extraordinary seen in ordinary circumstances. Think about that. All of those different constituents that we've talked about that make up Rendlesham, and we're talking about Rendlesham, and I know we don't want to get obsessed with that, but you can, you can use Rendlesham as a template for any UFO case, including the ones that you were talking about reported by the carrier, you know, the, the, the aircraft carriers in, in the Pacific Ocean. You know, there are lots of different incidents there as well. There isn't just one incident. You know, each of those incidents reported um, by the um, by the carrier groups, you know, you think there's one incident, but then you start going into the detail of it and you find that there's two or three interlinked incidents all sparked off by something else that happened days earlier. So every one of those different things might have a different explanation. And that once people get into the idea that there is such a thing as a UFO that is flying around, that is unexplained, and that, you know, something else is going to happen, you start interpreting what might be completely ordinary things in extraordinary circumstances. And I, and I use the example of the, uh, you know, after they went back after that first night, they went into the clearing the forest clearing and they saw what they thought were marks in the ground left by the ufo and marks on the trees now whatever you think about the marks in the ground and the radiation and that that's another huge pandora's box that's probably best not to open we know for sure that those marks that were left in the trees were made by a bloke called briggs who worked for the forestry commission because a few months before this incident happened those trees had been marked to be chopped 
by the Forestry Commission, which owned that land. And Vince Thurkettle, who was the chief forester at the time, who lived in the forest, he actually went into the clearing just a day or so after this had happened. And he actually saw the marks on the on the trees that the Americans were saying, these have been caused by something dropping through the trees. And he said, they're the marks that we put on the trees. Well, I believe in the audio, in the audio clip that actually you can access through Shadows of Your Mind magazine oh. on one of the pages. You click on the cassette, which is, which is great. Um, they do say that they've never seen those sorts of marks uh, is it heal or fix themselves so quickly? But obviously, if it, they were previously made, what you're saying is, and it sounds likely, they're assuming those marks were made in the same incident. It just happens to be the marks on the ground aren't related to the marks on the tree. This is the point I'm making, though, isn't it? That, that those marks were looked unusual to the American airmen. And because they, they were in the area where they'd seen whatever it was they'd seen, it's quite a human thing to think, ah, whatever we saw has made those unusual marks on the trees. But the forester who lived there, who worked there, who walked into the same forest the next morning and looked at the trees, he said, oh, well, they're the marks made by Bill Briggs. Do you see what I mean? So when you when you think that something extraordinary is it has happened, you then start noticing other things and you think, ah, they must be the marks left by the landing gear. They must be that. When there might be an ordinary explanation for all these things. So I've got one more question on the the incident in itself, just to ask you a bit of a yes or no, which you, you touched sure. on earlier. But I don't, I'm not happy with the answer I got fully on it. So I'll ask sure. it again. Um, Jim Peniston, yeah, all that stuff can be explained, uh, and either you could be right, and uh, any of those facts that come up, or opinions, or whatever it might be, fireballs, ETs, whatever people want to think. That's the listeners can make up their own minds as well. Which you said, and I appreciate. I like that. Um, point of view that people can make up their own minds just listen to all the facts and whatnot yeah do a bit of research go find out yourself jim peniston however has made claims that he saw a three foot by three foot triangular craft with symbols and whatnot on it that's not something you just misremember that's not something you exaggerate that's that's called lying if again if he's not seen that well, what, what, in your opinion, has happened then in Jim Penison's part of the story? Well, I don't think my opinion is is does, means anything at all. All I can say is is that he definitely saw something in the forest. And if you go, the, the only reliable evidence of what he saw is what he said himself at the time. And the only evidence we have of that is the handwritten or typewritten statement that he gave to Colonel Hull. And I, I know also that Colonel Conrad, base commander, actually um, told me that he actually sat down and interrogated, um, interrogated is probably the wrong word, debriefed him afterwards. And the story that he told at the time bears no resemblance to the one that he's now telling. There was no mention of symbols. He did say he'd seen an object in the forest. I think there's no doubt that that story is genuine that he did actually tell that story at the time it happened. But if he's, if he touched this thing, if he saw all these symbols on it, then why did he not tell his commanding officer that when he was debriefed about it a couple of days later? Because he certainly didn't tell Holt that, and he didn't tell Conrad that at the time. Those stories have only emerged years and years later. So in my opinion, he did have an experience in the forest. I don't know what it was that happened to him. But I do think that a lot of the stuff that uh, has emerged later, the stuff that's supposedly in his notebook, et cetera, um, and all these binary code things, I, I do think it, that is science fiction. And I, I, th I, think, I think whether he's deliberately made it up or whether 
he just needs to keep telling the story. And because the original story isn't exciting enough, he needs to make it more and more exciting because otherwise you're not going to get your face on TV. You're not going to get books written and sold. You're not going to get on lecture tours. I know this may seem a bit cynical, but I'm sure I'm sure that there is an element of that in some of this with some of these people that are, you know, they're retired, they're, they're, they've left the military and they think, well, what's not to like? You know, I can get I can get a, a weekend away in a nice hotel. I can go on TV. I can get paid for for speaking. I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting that they're making this up just to make money, but something clearly did happen to them. Um, and I think all these years later, after, when you've told a story over and over again and you've embellished it and you've added new bits to make it a bit more exciting for newer audiences, you're not going to get those people at any point sort of saying, mm, well, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe it was the lighthouse after all. It, it doesn't make for a good ITV Sunday afternoon no. movie. Um <laughs> But listen, I, I'm more than happy to take all the, all those facts and, and put them on the table for listeners to go and make up their own minds as well. Um, but but and- what, I would, what I would say here is that I, in all these interviews that I do, I am being, I'm trying to play devil's advocate and I'm trying to be provocative and I'm trying to invite people not to believe the hyped up nonsense that is much of this stuff about this subject that they read about and they see on YouTube you know, go and look at the original documents themselves. You know, I mean, I played a part in, in getting thousands of pages of original documents, Ministry of Defence documents on this subject released. And what I find absolutely amazing is that no one's even bothered looking at them. So listen, let, let me ask you then, David, because I've, I've got this as a question potentially later on, but not as related, but I think it's really relevant now. Because some of the listeners who, let's be honest, when they hear that as an opinion, uh, regardless whether they see you as an authority or not on the subject, will be a little bit disheartened because people want that to have been an ET contact out in... And let's, I do as well, but yeah. I don't know whether it was or wasn't. I've not seen that video. That video doesn't exist. On, on, honestly, Andy, there's nothing, as a journalist, if I, if, I, if I could have proof that an alien craft had landed in Rendlesham Forest and that the British Ministry of Defence had covered that up deliberately, that would be the best story I could ever write. You know, it would make my... I'd be able to just put my feet up and say, right, don't need to go teaching anymore, can give up the day job, here's the evidence. But um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. All we've got are extraordinary claims at the end of the day. You know, so I'm trying to be honest here. And I could, if I wanted to be dishonest, I could come up with with the most extraordinary theory about it. Yeah, it was time travelers, and you know, and there is evidence that's been hidden, and you know, I'm on the trail of it, and all this sort of stuff. It'd be very easy for me to come out with something like that. But I like to think that as a journalist, I have to follow where the evidence takes me. I wouldn't have been successful as a journalist for 20, 30 years if I'd just sort of made up stories and 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 sort of said, yes, this claim is true when there's no evidence. I mean, I, did, I just wouldn't have had a career and, in journalism doing that. And that is absolutely, absolutely fair. And the reason I've got this show and that the tone that it has, um, I don't necessarily have guests on that, well, the stories I might enjoy listening to, I don't necessarily feel it's right for this podcast because I like it to be objective and have a reasonable level of logic and and what can be applied in this subject. But let me ask you though, David, do you have any 
UFO cases and all that you've looked at that mm. really does stand out to you? Just one in particular, you think, if you had to sit and explain to someone that this would be one for you, that I'm not saying that you have to come to the conclusion it's aliens because none of them can do that. But is there any of them that you really think this this is a far more interesting case than Rendlesham, Absolutely. for example? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've had two or three really good ones. I mean, one of the ones that stands out in my head Unfortunately, he's dead now, but this is um, a senior RA. Well, he ended up um, working in intelligence, but um, a, a guy who was flying meteors for the RAF in the 1950s. And there was a, a, an absolutely really, really good um, account that he gave of um, he was out on a test flight from a base called RAF Little Rissington, which is in the Cotswolds. And he had a Royal Navy um, student pilot sat behind him, and they went up. From this base, this is in an October day, and they broke through the cloud. And as they broke through the cloud, saw what they described as three absolutely perfect flying saucer-shaped objects hovering in sort of echelon formation above them. And this guy, um, um, when he saw these things, he reported it to ground control. They scrambled aircraft to go and investigate it. The the Royal Navy guy was sat behind him. He saw exactly the same thing. Um, when they returned to base, they were so shaken that this guy looked like the, the guy that um, interviewed him said he looked like he'd seen a ghost. And this thing stuck with him all through his life. And he died about five years ago. His name was Mick Swinney. Everyone I've spoken to in the RAF, and I've interviewed dozens of pilots who've seen these things, um, all said he's an absolutely sound witness. I, he gave me the name of the, of the, the Royal Navy um, student who was with him, I, tr I tracked him down, lives in Portsmouth, interviewed him. He remembers it as clear as anything as well. I found an entry in the logbook of the base that said that they'd seen these things, that it was an unidentified account. They were interviewed by the Air Ministry at the time. Unfortunately, the file on the case is one of those that's been destroyed because most of the stuff from the 50s was. Um, and he saw something inexplicable. I don't know what it was. It could have been some kind of military... Um, test or some kind of balloon or something top secret balloon project but to me what he described is something that i can't explain and he's a very impressive witness um and it wasn't just him you know i've got you've got two witnesses who saw something that they both agree on at the same time which is very unusual uh, another um case similar case um uh, the, there was a um, the report that was done by the the ministry of defense's um defense intelligence staff in the 1950s that was used to brief Winston Churchill. I traced the only surviving copy of that report, which they said had been destroyed, but I got it released by the MOD. And in there, there's an excellent account by a test pilot called Stanley Hubbard, who um, he used to fly all the sort of cutting edge jets at the Farnborough Air Show in the 1950s. And when I've when I got his name, I tried my best to track him down, found he was still alive in 2001, living in America, tracked him down. He came over to see me. I interviewed him at the RAF club in Piccadilly. And he had this most amazing story, which is in the, um, the Flying Saucer Working Party report, which I'd advise you to go and read. Really good account of um, where this subject stood in 1950, 1951. And he was on the airfield at Farnborough one morning, um, he was walking out onto the airfield and he saw this incredible flying object coming towards him, low level, classic flying saucer, revolving, lights flashing around it, you know, and he was absolutely dumbfounded. And there was a, apparently a, a, a woman um, flight lieutenant or something who was in one of these um, little buildings that he was uh, standing next to. She saw it as well. 
and and he was interviewed by this really super secret you know x-files department that existed at that time who obviously took his sighting seriously did lots of investigations on it and then he he he, he never saw the report until i found it 50 years later and gave him a copy of it so both his sighting and the one at Little Rissington, I just think are the ones that I just think are the most impressive. I don't think that what they saw was something otherworldly, but it was obviously something inexplicable and something outside what science can explain. And, and I think there are all kinds of natural, weird things that go on in our atmosphere that could be the source of a lot of these um inexplicable um, UFO incidents of of the type that we've mentioned. I mean, one of the other documents that I got released from the Ministry of Defence is, is what you probably heard of the Condine Report by Ron Haddo, yeah. who was, you know, you've heard of DI-55, which was the actual real, uh, they they were the, the, the intelligence officers who did UFO investigations, not, not the, the UFO desk that you hear a lot about. They, the real investigations were done by Haddo and his friends in DI-55, and he did this three-volume report, and he ob- had obviously become convinced that UFOs existed. It wasn't, it, he wasn't debunking it. He was, he was saying, like me, that 90% of these things can be explained, but the, the stubborn 10% that can't are caused by what he had decided was some kind of atmospheric plasma. Now, that in itself is a very odd conclusion because he, he basically used that um, to sort of summarise what he thought was behind these unexplained cases for his bosses at the MOD. Now, there's no scientific evidence that these atmospheric plasmas exist. Scientists, would, would if they read that, would just say, what? Where's your evidence? But he'd obviously, he was the, the MOD's UFO expert for many, many years, Ron Haddo. And he'd investigated cases, he'd spoken to witnesses, he'd, he had access to all the top secret files on the subject. That was his conclusion. And I think he's probably onto something there. So I, I think that the, inex, the the really difficult cases to explain, and maybe what those guys saw in Rendlesham Forest could be included in this, I don't know. Um, but I think it was something natural to this planet. I don't think it's anything that's come from outer space. I think that's the, the most likely explanation. But I think also another factor in this, which often gets ignored, are top secret experimental aircraft. And there's absolutely no doubt that some of those have been seen and reported as UFOs and that the military authorities, they're quite happy for people to think that those things were UFOs because it suits their purposes. I mean, the famous Calvin photograph um, you, you, you probably um, you've ruined one of my quick fire questions. You, you can on, ask yeah. me about that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I've been doing a lot of work on that um, case, and I've actually spoken to the uh, intelligence officer who actually investigated it, who actually spoke to the witnesses, did all the um, the background work on it, and um, this is probably a bit of an exclusive for you. There's absolutely no doubt that what that was was some um, some kind of top secret American. Um, Black Project aircraft that was flying from a base in Scotland at the time. And the people who took those photographs, they were in the right place at the wrong time, and they captured something on the cameras that caused a huge meltdown in the um, the military at the time. They were not interested in Rendlesham. They were interested in what those two guys in Scotland had captured on that on their cameras. 
And if I'm not mistaken with the Calvine photo, it's it's not mm. just that there's a I know the artist impression of it's a triangular looking craft, but there is a sort of a fighter jet, whatever you want to call it, behind it. Harrier. It's called it a Harrier. That for me was always something with that photograph that made me question if that was real and if that photograph does indeed exist and that incident did happen, that potentially would lean me towards military technology because why would one of our jets be just escorting this thing along? It's just not been out in patrol and went, oh, dearie me, look, this uh, this guy who's uh, out having a nice walk in the hills has not only spotted and took a photograph of this UFO, mm. I'm also just having a little fly behind it just to see where it goes. That always made me wonder, and, and I suppose that's the logical aspect of it that you're, you're trying to get at as well, that you mm. know, let's put two and two together. There's an unknown craft with one of ours behind it. It's probably also one of ours. And when I say ours, I mean human technology. Well, it was an American <laughs> aircraft. I, I, I'm, I'm counting American as human, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we can take that as right, yeah. can't we? Yeah, yeah. But the but, point I'm trying to make there is is that that case is like one example that has often been described as, you know, the, I think Nick Pope has described it as, you know, the, one of the best UFO photographs ever taken. Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, he's, he's, he's implying that it's a UFO when he knows it's otherwise because I suppose he's, he's actually seen an original version of it. I mean, the one, the only trace of it that's left is what is actually a line drawing. It's not the actual original photo. You know, the one you've seen, the really grainy one. Yeah. It's a, it's a line drawing based upon one of the negatives. And then the, the really incredible thing about this was that the photographers sent the photographs to the Scottish Daily Record in Glasgow, and they have destroyed the negatives. Can you believe that? Uh, um, for, for for reasons not that aren't UFO related, I'm not a fan of the Scottish Daily Record, yeah. but that's more of a football affiliation. That's uh, <laughs> is dropping. The very few listeners will understand that one, mm. but it might give away football allegiances. But yeah, um, it's it's one of those again coincidental, things, things. and it's easy to go into conspiracy territory with all that yeah, as well. And um, that's you go down the rabbit holes of those conversations. But listen, that's some really interesting food for thought. You've brought up Nick Pope before I did. So I'm going to ask you the question now. And we talked about this um, weeks ago when I first got in touch with you. Um, and, and it was something we talked about just before we came on the air as well. So I'll ask you officially. Um, Nick Pope, you are one of the people who recently have been uh, quoted um, or you, you've talked about Nick Pope and his claims as to what his role was at the MOD and what his responsibilities were have been is, is embellished the right word or would you want to use anything stronger or less than exaggerated that? i think is the word and, and it's not just me saying that if you, again i tell if, if you don't believe me if you don't want to believe me oh and look, i've seen the documents i've seen go and look at yeah, the documents his philip mantle sent out quite own, a lot of them his own boss uses the word he has exaggerated what he did in that role i don't think there's any question about that and the fact is, he did do that role. He was a desk officer who was responsible for UFOs for a period of three years between 1991 and 1994. I'm not disputing that at all. And mm -hmm. I'm also not disputing the fact that he believes that he investigated stuff whilst he was there. But all of this controversy all is all based upon how you, how you interpret the word investigated. You know, because to me, investigating something means you go out, you talk to people, you go in the field, you gather all the information together. That isn't what he did. He never, he never once at any stage left his desk at the Ministry of Defence to do any of those things. And if you talk to all the people who did that job, 
Um, don't forget, he was there three years. The UFO desk existed for 60 years. So dozens of other people did that role, including Simon Whedon, who was the debt UFO desk officer at the time of the Rendlesham incident. And I've recently interviewed him on the record. It's in on my, and he says very specifically at the time he did, he had that role, he they didn't investigate. And all the other people I've I've spoken to who who, who don't want publicity, that they just did that job because it was a civil service role, they were asked to do it for three years, and all of them say, we didn't investigate. There was no money to investigate. All we did is we received reports from the police, members of the public, we looked at them, we had to, because we were getting literally dozens of these every day, and that the UFO responsibility was just a tiny percentage of what we did, something like 20% of their job role. Everything else was on something completely different. So they never had time to investigate. There never was funds to investigate. And all they did was just check through these, these reports. And you can see them in the files. They've all been released. Bits of paper where you've got A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, something seen over London at such and such an hour. And in the vast majority of cases, all they would do is just put those reports on file. Now, Nick Pope is on record quite recently as saying that the MOD investigated 12,000 sightings. I mean, pull the other one. I mean, if you don't believe that, look at the actual files that have been released. There's no evidence that the vast majority of them, were that anyone other than just looked at them, scribbled something on the top and put it in the filing cabinet with all the thousands of others. You know, the, um, the, the beauty of me doing this is I get to be I get to just ask the questions and generally keep my opinion to myself as much that, as I can. That, However, is, what, that is not an investigation. And, no, and, in and, the, and I agree. In the few cases where something required a more a follow up, it wouldn't have been Nick Pope's um, job to do that. He passed it on to people in DI fifty five, to people in Ops GE RAF, um, who all had desk officers who he talked to. And they talked to him, and one of these is the person that I've just been talking about who was involved in the Calvin incident. Um, it was, if anyone did an investigation and followed it up properly by checking radar tapes or even very, very rarely going out and interviewing someone, it would have been DI-55 or Ops GERF, not the person in Nick Pope's role. They were very much a sort of a fact-finding. That's what they did. Um, they Administrative. Briefed- administrative they brief ministers they, they respond they, you can see all the letters in the files almost like a standard cut and paste letter you know thank you for your ufo report you know we have looked at it and found there is no thousands of examples of it that was their role they had no time or money to do anything else now obviously nick pope had a personal interest in the subject before he even took that role and i know he claimed that he hasn't um, that isn't the case, but there is evidence that he was interested in the subject before he took that role on. And I think, quite, and I'm not criticising him for this, he probably thought, this is something I can make a living out of when I retire from the MOD. And he has, but, very successfully, and he has, yeah. And he has. Now, I'm not jealous of that. I just wish he'd be honest about it and he'd have a bit of humility rather than this sort of arrogant sort of, I ran the British government's UFO project. No such project existed. You know, he waves a, a he waves this bit of paper, this Hansard thing, where it says Nick Pope investigated. Well, so what? There are dozens of other Hansard um, entries that said that they didn't investigate and that there was no UFO project. So he's just selectively cherry picking the the bits that he thinks supports what he is now claiming about it. But if you talk to all the other people who did that role, they don't recognise his description of what he did. They just said, well, he was just a clerk. That's all. That's all he was. 
you know, is, is that something though that can be born from the media? And like I say, growing up for me, uh, being in the UK and and being, I'm 34 mm. now. So when I was like 10, 11, 12, um, X Files were out, and the the UK and uh, if you look at the press, like the Sun and the Daily Record, the kind of tab, the tabloids. Thing. Whenever yeah, X Files was huge. So someone's looked and went, Nick Pope is our Fox Mulder and I saw that exactly. regularly and that stuck because in a tabloid for sensationalism in which yeah. they, they go for that that's a sort of heading whether he did or didn't do that role it's looking from these documents and, and from other people coming out what well, you get where, in your I head mean, when ask, someone ask yourself ask yourself where does he write the Sun newspaper not the most uh, not the most reliable source of information is it really no you know, this is this is the newspaper that famously published the thing about the Hillsborough disaster the truth about what happened you can't believe a word that you read in that newspaper no and again it's one of these things now as things are coming out and we're finding out more and more people should go and look at these and make up their own mind and it's like you say if, if i had to sit on either side of the fence it's looking like nick pope has exaggerated the role that he done probably quite substantially no doubt he has more access than the average person had to these files or he saw them first certainly but like you say that role appears to be more and more of an administ- administrative one but i mean what i would what i would say to people is I mean, good luck to Nick Pope. You know, I think, I think, I mean, what I would say in his favour is that he did, he did make a stand at the time that he published that first book of his, Open Skies, Closed Minds. I mean, it must have taken quite, you know, a bit of courage to sort of do that, given the fact that the vast majority of the people he was working with must have been utterly horrified about what he was doing, coming out and saying that I think, you know, there's something going on here, that there are things that can't be identified that are a threat to the realm. And I, I although I personally think that, um, he was right. He was wrong about that. That the, the, the evidence isn't there. Um, you, what you've got to do is you. The, the trouble is because he's the only person from that role who is publicly talking about it. It's very easy for people who hear him talking about this on TV and on the, all these programs to think um, that what he's saying is representative of the Ministry of Defence. I mean, it isn't. They say it's his personal opinion. And, you know, if 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 some of the other people who did that role that he did were interviewed, you would get a completely different point of view. But those people aren't interested in talking because they're not making a living out of the subject. David, so, I, I would swear you've seen my notes because you're setting up my segues absolutely perfectly here, okay? Because this, <laughs> this does come nicely into, just before listener questions, um, the UK's involvement in the UFO and UAP subject. Yeah, Let's take Nick Pope out of the equation as if he didn't Good. exist, as many may hope that was the case and that's that's not my opinion but it's not it's not all about him there were other people who did that role and some of them have got some really interesting stories to tell and and the role that nick pope and let's just uh, let me be devil's advocate here and then and the role nick pope has then created for himself which can be right or wrong given what's been said he has gone with the route of he knows or may have been privy to information that would allude to potentially alien or otherworldly technology, visitors, UFOs, flying saucers, saw all these reports, okay? Yeah. If you take Nick Pope out of this conversation altogether, the that desk existed, but for the listener's point of view, it was more than likely a pretty boring role, given what yeah. it actually was. So that takes me on to the point. The UK government 
if you look at what's going on in the US right now with the UAP task force bill now being enacted through the Senate and yeah. within 180 days we're hoping to get some sort of report it was promised it would be a declassified report how much I'm sure that will come out how much of it makes it actually out to the, the public will be obviously questionable and what's in it will, will remain to be seen the UK seems to have no appetite really for any sort of discussion around UFOs, UAPs, other than every so often we release a batch of files that people like yourself go and investigate, which is great for people like me because I, I look for people like you to, or what have they said about it, and I can go in and do a bit of research on the back of your months and months of research. So, you know, literally pick at the low-hanging fruit. Why does the UK seem to have so little interest in this as a topic and subject? given what's going on in the US, for example? Well, I think it comes in waves and troughs, doesn't it? Because if you if you remember, until recently, the Americans didn't have any formal um, involvement in it at all. If you think about it, the Project Blue Book closed in 1969, and the official line from right up from 1970 right up to 2009 or whenever it was, that the, or was it more recent than that, isn't it, when the this um, AATIP thing first exploded into the public consciousness? 20, the Ameri- 2017, yeah. 2017, well, if you think about it, between 1970 when Blue Book closed and then, the Americans just said, we're not interested in this subject at all, which is one of the reasons they actually... When Colonel Holt made his report, they said, oh, we're not interested because Project Blue Book closed in, in you know, 10 years ago. Please, we don't investigate this subject anymore. So during that period that the Americans were not interested, the, the UFO desk at the Ministry of Defense was operating. So for a long period of time, there was a formal um, government sort of interest in the subject in Britain. And as you know, on the surface, that was closed down in 2009. So do you see what I mean? It's sort of like going in troughs and waves, and now all of a sudden it's the Americans who are now taking the lead. And all through this period, the French UFO project, which hardly ever gets mentioned, that's that's been running continually and paid for by the French government, and nobody ever hears anything about that because we, no, we can't – well, I, I, can't, I can't read and speak French, so we leave that one alone. <laughs> so let me ask then, with the, the 2017, what we found out mm. was they did have several programmes, and these are just what we've heard about. Again, that can go into conspiracy territory. Was there more? It sounds mm. from what comes out, especially from Lou Elizondo, there potentially was. So you had ATIP, which was uh, created from OSAP. So again, you had your advanced aerospace weapons. I don't they love their acronyms. Eh? They do, they do, and it's so hard mm. to keep up with. Them. That's quite a lot of them. However, you can go back then to even as into the mid two thousands, these programs existed. So it would make sense that either something happened that they suddenly came into being, or it's probably safer to assume that. And God, it's dangerous to assume in this topic, but especially people like yourself who who have quite a breadth of knowledge, but. These have been going on for some time in some sort of format. Whether it's as as exciting and sexy or romantic as we hope they are, that remains to be seen. However, with ATIP and OSAP, there seems to have been quite a level of investigation done and all the talk of the budgets and whatnot. And and what has come out of it is Lou Elizondo, Chris Mellon, Steve Justice, some some relatively big names, Lou Elizondo being relatively new to the scene from 2017 um, and, and got involved in To The Stars Academy. I'll park the conversation about To The Stars Academy because that looks like in the next days and weeks we're about to hear there's some big changes with that and it looks likely that Lou Elizondo, Chris Mellon and Steve Justice will be leaving or announcing that they're very much dramatically reducing their roles within TTSA. That was inevitable. (laughs) 
I'm, I'm a fan of TTSA, and I think I'm going to have to qualify that in a show at some point. But I'm a fan of what Luella Zondo came out and has done in Chris Mellon and what they are pursuing. And I'm interested to see where they go next with, with their projects that they're, they're talking about coming in January. That was George Knapp just discussed that quite recently. But so what I'm saying there is, in my opinion, it looks like the US government has had some sort of interest in this over the decades. The UK government, do you think we have got anything like that? And I don't mean a desk because I really don't think you can compare the the UK's desk to what it seems the US government have been doing and involved in. Have yeah, we got uh, anything you think like that in the background? Well, um, this is where I can be a bit more um, positive in that from the various people that I'm I'm in contact with and speaking to, and have spoken to, um, I can say for definite that there was some kind of informal project going on in the um, in the America, in, certainly in the USA, in the 1990s. Because I've spoken to people who've actually been there and attended conferences on this subject at an intelligence level. So there was definitely something uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, way before any of this new stuff that's come along. And also, um, I just think that. A lot of when you're talking about this level in the intelligence communities, all the knowledge is compartmentalized. So people are working in offices on subjects like this, might not even know that someone next door in another office is working on some other aspect of it. So it's almost, and that's done deliberately to stop uh, nosy parkers like me and you from finding out what's really going on. Um, But I think it's, I, I find it incomprehensible that the British government doesn't have someone who is keeping tabs on this subject and liaising with the Americans. And, and I know for a fact that someone is. Now, how they, be, how they can hide it, well, they can... And the thing what's happened with COVID is, is actually helping them now because, yeah. because of the fact that this is not just the Ministry of Defence, but just about every other government department now is just effectively said, right, this freedom of information thing that's uh, been hanging around our heads... Uh, ever since 2000 and whenever it was that Tony Blair made the mistake of bringing it in, we can dispense with that now. We can just ignore freedom of information requests because we can say we're so busy dealing with the, the, you know, of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah so, we're, so finding out what we had, we had this little window um, when Tony Blair signed off the first freedom of information. Like this is when I, I, I got in there like a ferret down a hole and, and, and really sort of dug out, all these masses and masses of, of documents that they've been withholding for years because there was that opportunity. And ever since about 2010, they've been putting the drawbridge down and getting anything out of them now is virtually impossible. So actually being able to establish who it, which department now is keeping tabs on this and who it is and how they're hiding it you know, because if you if you've got your MP to ask, you know, who who in the UK government is responsible for this subject, you'll just get a complete denial, and they'll just say, oh, all the stuff has gone to the National Archives, and we're not interested in extraterrestrials, and they're probably telling the truth because they aren't interested in extraterrestrials; they're interested in weapons and technology, and you know, harnessing all sorts of weird things that they could use in military technology. So they can quite, they can quite honestly say we are, we don't have a, uh, a role in the investigation of extraterrestrial phenomena. And that would be quite honest. People say that they, Oh yeah, they're obviously covering it up and lying, but I think they're actually being honest about that because they, they aren't interested in extraterrestrial. They're interested in other stuff. The way I see our government is, and I don't know if this is just from decades of growing up with American TV, Mm. is that the American political system and the people involved in the country are much more open to the idea 
of investigating UFOs, let's just use that umbrella term, yeah. the, the, the British yeah. government. And I think that trickles down to the, the British public. I don't see anywhere near the appetite in the, the UK, with the UK mainstream that there would be in the American mainstream. Well, the, I just think the, I mean, I've seen this as a journalist over the years. I mean, if, if going back again to the Rendlesham Forest incident, you know, do you remember the, I mean, I remember as a 16-year-old, who was an avid reader of newspapers this is before I trained as a journalist, seeing that front page of the News of the World, UFO lands in Suffolk and it's official. And can you imagine a mainstream newspaper in 2020 having a UFO story like that on its front cover treated seriously? The whole subject now is treated just as like, oh, uh, and, you know, you know, like the thing at the end of the ITV news. And finally. Yeah, it's, it's the, ca- the cartoon it's, flying saucer and yeah. the, the X-Files logo, the music. Yeah, that's yeah. And the little green men. We mentioned the sun. Every story that the sun does, you've got the classic little picture, haven't you, of the flying saucer and the little yep. green man with the big head and the big eyes. You know, it, it, it's it's entertainment. They don't treat the subject seriously anymore. So that that so it has become entertainment in this country. Yeah, and e- even regardless of what the context is of the story or the substance, the sun and those types of tabloids in the UK. For example, the New York Times article that ran on the front page that admitted the US government had a UFO program for all intents yeah. and purposes was the language. The UK could have that exact same story in our press, but it would have the spin on it that would have the cartoon figures. And it's very easy to make what is a re- relatively serious story and quite a sensational one mm. to really be dumbed down onto page 16 and 17. Yeah. And like and people like yourself would probably assume you slap forward by Nick Pope on there as well would, would probably come along with it in the UK because that's the go-to for, for those types of conversations. So again, would you say, do you see that changing anytime in the near future? No, I don't actually, <laughs> unfortunately. I just think the, the coverage of the subject in the media is just, is just appalling. It's just so poor. You know, and uh, I'd just like to think of a time when I was a journalist in the 90s when we used to do so much better job um, but then we had more journalists, we had more resources, and I think a lot of it's just download, you know, just just do what, give 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 the the masses the entertainment that they want. You know, this, the celebrity culture is another part of it, and I think this is one of the things that I find troubling about um, ufology as it stands at the moment. It's all about celebrities. It's all about big names like Nick Pope and colonel halt and what have you and they get these little sort of cults and groupies hanging around them and sort of oh you know you know everything that they say you know i want i, I want to be part of it and it's almost like it, it's almost like trying to touch something you know that because they've got a perceived sort of military background or something that by by being part of their little friendship group on facebook that that somehow you know bestows some special knowledge on them and i, I just think it you're not going to get to the truth in that way you know, you, you, you're you being fed things that those people want you to know. And, you know, it, it's not, you're not, if, if you really think that you're on, you're, you're seeking out the truth, the truth is out there. You're not going to, you're not going to find the truth by becoming part of this celebrity UFO um, fraternity that seems to sort of run the subject nowadays. So before we get to listener questions, let me ask you, uh, addressing the listeners, of course, how can someone, in your opinion, then go about finding out the truth? Where are they best? What what basket are they best putting their eggs in? Well, I think it's um, it's a case of being very very well read and 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 you know being familiar with the history of the subject that you think you're interested in. And again, this whole thing with Nick Pope, you know, I made some 
throwaway comment on a on a, a an interview like this with Martin Willis, and it's it, all these people all sort of shocked and outraged that I said that I made these comments, and I just thought, oh, doesn't everybody know that? You know, I mean, it's it's been common knowledge in British ufology for the last twenty years that that's the case. So it, I, I'm just staggered that people watch stuff on YouTube and think that they know something about ufology as a result. You know, I mean, you, you need to go back to the literature. You need to read the first books about the subject that were published in the 1950s. You need to you need to look at the, the government files rather than just sort of listening to things that Nick Pope says about what's in the government files. The government files are there. There's something like 60,000 pages of them that you can download from the National Archives website. You know, don't listen to me. Don't listen to Nick Pope. Go to those original documents because the truth is actually in there. You might not think it, and you might not. Th you might. Oh, yeah. There's no evidence of aliens in there, but you, there is an awful lot of other evidence in there that will, I can tell you, open your eyes. You know, so you should go to the original documents. You should not listen to what somebody's saying 30 years after the event, but go to what they said after the event, a day or two after the event that's actually written down somewhere, that is going to be more evidential than what someone is saying on a YouTube talk show 30 years later. You know, so these are the basic things that I learned as a journalist way back when I was training as a journalist, you know, not to believe what people tell you, to actually go find corroboration of what they're telling you from other people or from documentary evidence. And you put all those things together and that is the nearest you're going to get uh, to finding out, interpreting what really happened in those circumstances. Excellent. Let's go into listener questions because I know you were trolling Twitter as well, having a oh, look awesome. at these as they were as they were coming up. So thank you to everyone. We did get a lot of them sent in uh, via email, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Obviously, gets a flood. So I've managed to get as many as I could on here, folks. So apologies if I don't get to your question this time. Um, some of them may have been answered throughout the body of the interview, anyway. But even if we go back over something, I'm sure I'm sure Dave will give us a quick um, summary on on the on his thoughts. Um, Adam Fendrich was asking uh, your thoughts on any early or later high strangeness in the area oh you mean in the rendlesham area yes yeah yeah well as i said um i think i made i, made, I read that thing from 1946 and so i mean obviously yeah. that area as people make this big deal about it about that it must be something military because of all the military establishments in that area but as someone who's interested in folklore and supernatural um uh, traditions, it, you, you could equally say that it's no big surprise that this happened to um, those people who were on the airbase, because if you look back into folklore, into all the ghost stories and weird stuff that's, that's, that's happened in that part of Suffolk, there are dozens and dozens of stories of people seeing strange lights in the sky and on the ground um, year after year after year all through history. So that area does seem to be a weird area. It seems to attract all these sort of weird things not just ufos but but um, ghostly dogs um um weird sort of electromagnetic phenomena and that so I, I think that's the more interesting connection rather than the military one it just happens that that area of east anglia i mean this is a historical thing isn't it it's during the second world war when the american air force came over and they needed bases to attack germany they used east anglia because it was flat and they could build runways there so that, that's really why the Americans were there. And then they developed radar there. And there was all these sort of top secret um, um, radar stations that went up and stories about death rays and, and all kinds. So I, I think um, it's a really good question, that one, because I, d I don't see the Rendlesham incident as something that is unique. 
it's you've got to see it in the context of all the other weird stuff. And I mentioned that case from the 1950s, the Lake and Heath Bent Waters um, sighting, which was much more famous than Rendlesham. If you go back 20, 30 years, that's the story that everyone was talking about. This happened at the height of the Cold War. And different to Rendlesham, in that case, the aircraft were actually scrambled to investigate this thing that was seen on radar at um, RAF Lake and Ethan Bentwaters. And I've actually tracked down and spoken to some of the pilots of the RAF Venoms that were sent to investigate it. And they had something on their airborne radar as well, far more impressive than the Rendlesham case. And very rarely is that story mentioned. No, thank you. It's a good question as well. Uh, Dave Lorimer, he asks, uh, what were your thoughts on the rumour this was an SAS practical joke in order to get back at base personnel for previous actions? Well, you may remember this. Uh, This is a really good example of how poor the media are and where the media sensationalise things. Now, I was sent this anonymous letter, supposedly from a a former member of the Special Air Service, and this was sort of four or five years ago. And straight away, I immediately knew it was a leg pull, a very clever hoax. And there's been many other hoaxes um, that have been pulled on people um, involved in the Rendlesham incident over the years. And it arrived in my pigeonhole at work on the 1st of April. Now, that straight away is a giveaway to anyone with any common sense. 1st of April, April Fool's joke. And it's a very elaborate story about how, um, I mean, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's it's about some, someone claiming that he was in the SAS and the Rendlesham incident was all about how um, the, the, the SAS had, had done some kind of secret test to see how well that American base was defended. This is at the height of the Cold War. They'd basically mucked it up. The Americans had caught them and given, given them a bit of a thrashing and and during the time that they were being held on the base, one of the Americans described them as illegal aliens because this is American land, even though it's in Britain. And the SAS afterwards feeling really pissed off about this thought, right, we'll show them some aliens and we'll go back in the middle of the night. We'll set off pyrotechnics. We'll have something flashing in the trees. And that's what caused the Rendlesham incident. Now, whoever came up with that story, you know, back to what I was saying about storytelling and people exaggerating and using a little fact that they've pulled from somewhere and turning it into a big exaggerated story. Some very clever person there who thought, oh, we'll catch that David Clark out. He's, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see whether he buys this one. And they, they compo- composed this letter and they sent it to me and hoping that I would sort of endorse the story, go public with it, And I didn't. I sat on it for three years, and I actually tracked down and spoke to some real SAS um, personnel, including Robin Horsfall, who is very well-known in the media. Whenever the SAS are involved in anything, he's an ex-SAS officer. He was actually serving with the SAS in 1980. He was based in the Hereford Barracks, and straight away he said to me, this is a load of nonsense. This is somebody who doesn't know anything about the SAS, who's picked up on some little incident, and they've blown it out of all proportion. So... I broke the story on my um, blog, I think this is about two years ago, on the anniversary of the incident, of the Rendlesham incident. And I very clearly, in the story, said, this is the story that was sent to me. It's a hoax. Uh, you know, I, I'm basically challenging this person. You know, they, they hoped I'd buy this, but I'm, I'm saying it's nonsense, and here's why. And despite me making that clear, very, very clear, the media picked up on it, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, they ignored the bit about it being a hoax and they ran it as a genuine explanation for the Rendlesham incident. Doesn't that tell you everything you need to know about the tabloid media? You should not believe it. 
and 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 also Nick Pope picked up on this and had a real go at me as well, saying that I I, I was again without seemingly reading the fact that I'd, I'd investigated it, debunked it, and said this is an, this is a story that deserves to be told, but it's not what happened at Rendlesham. Go back to my blog, read it. You know, it, it's very very clear. So this is how easily things can get misinterpreted, and. I've been criticised for even publishing the story because somehow I'm trying to debunk the subject and make it out that Rendlesham wasn't a real alien UFO, this, that, or the other. That isn't what I'm doing at all. All I'm saying is someone sent me this story. Whatever you think of the story, and it's clearly a hoax, it's still an interesting story. So all I was doing is just putting it out there in public and saying I someone's trying to sort of snag me here to try and tell me that this is real and get me to run with it. And the reason I put it out was to see if anyone else, if this hoaxer had sent this story to anyone else. That's what I was doing. And I I, I basically, line by line, said that this can't possibly be true. I've spoken to some real SAS personnel who tell me that this is, this is a hoax. So the... I, don't, I don't see what else I could have done. I could have just not published it at all. But what? Why? I'm a journalist. Yeah, you qualified yeah. the story. Um, one of the Patreons, Craig, has mentioned about the, and that this ties in uh, being, uh, is very sarcastically, there was a chance it was a forced psychedelic experiment, <laughs> but he's, he's, he's put the laughing emojis, uh, just joking, but I believe this is in reference to Nick Redfern's book that talks about yes. it being the, the SAS. So would um, this be a bit of an offshoot on that that story? Do you feel possibly, that book? Possibly. But you know, I said that this person who'd, who sent the hoax letter had actually based it on... See, usually rumours are based upon some small fact that is true. And I think in Georgina Bruni's book on the subject, she says that there was some incident where, they are, where the um, SAS were involved in testing the defences of the airbase. And, and at the end of the day, this was a NATO airbase where it's suspected that tactical nuclear weapons were stored. So these places were tested regularly by the SAS. So I was able to establish that something of that kind had happened. It didn't involve a UFO incident, but because of the fact it was mentioned in Georgina Bruni's book, I think that's where this person who wrote this letter had, picked, had got the idea from. And they thought, ah, I'll I'll produce this elaborate story based upon this little mention in Georgina's book. So, you know, I think that often these stories have got some kind of factual base, but someone then exaggerates it for effect. And, you know, they, you might think, well, what was that person's motivation? But if you're a hoaxer, you can have lots of different motivations for perpetrating a hoax. And if I was going to hoax someone like that, I would create a completely fanciful story. I would introduce it into the UFO literature, and people have done this deliberately. And then they will just sit back, and it's almost like watching your own entertainment You'll just see people pick it up and turn it into um, the most elaborate story. And I think a lot of these things, you know, like Bob Lazar and what have you, I think these people are just sit sitting back and just chuckling and just thinking, oh, you know, I've made this up. It's a complete load of nonsense. And look at all these people all around the world that have bought into it and believed it because they want to believe it. We'll come to Bob Lazar in a quick fire round at the end. Uh, <laughs> John has asked, and this is something that hasn't come up in the conversation, but he wanted you to confirm that the lighthouse excuse that's regularly brought up is bogus. These are the, obviously, that people are saying it was a lighthouse that was not too far off. That was uh, the lights Ness. that were shown. Yes, that's it. 
I, there's no doubt that the orphaness lighthouse played a part in the Rendlesham incident. I mean, and, and if you don't believe that, I mean, there are all this nonsense stuff that I keep seeing online about oh, the beam of the lighthouse wasn't visible from the from the forest. That is a complete load of nonsense because I've actually seen it. I've been there myself in the forest and I've seen the lighthouse flashing. And if you read the original statements by John Burroughs and Jim Penniston and the others, they actually say that they saw a flashing light in the distance. They followed it for three hours and it took them three hours to work out it was a lighthouse. So the idea that the lighthouse couldn't have been misinterpreted as something odd is nonsense. You know, the, the, the evidence is there that it was. And I, what, what I would suggest, anyone who doubts this, if you go on Ian Ridpath's website, he's got a whole section on the lighthouse, and you can actually see footage of it with Vince Thurkettle, the forester who lived there at the time. BBC film crew went out into the forest in 1983, and you, you can actually see footage of the from where the airmen were standing. You can see the lighthouse pulsing in the background every five seconds. Listen to Holt's tape whilst you're watching that flashing, and there's a bit in the tape where he's in the clearing, and the various other airmen are saying to him, look, it's out there, sir, on the coast, across there. And he could, there it is again. There it is again. And it's exactly the same five-second flashing of the lighthouse that you could see from the forest. Now, because Colonel Holt doesn't actually say, yeah, the flashing is next to the lighthouse, he never mentions the lighthouse. So why doesn't he mention the lighthouse? If, if he knew what it was, why didn't he mention it on the tape recording? Fair. James has asked, Dr. Clark, do you think it's possible the alleged RFI NIEMR slash terahertz exposure at RFI is a cover for something else? Just picked this from Condine, which in turn picked up from dubious Soviet sources. Ooh, well, I, I don't know the answer to that one because there's an awful lot of stuff in the Condine report that um, is incomprehensible to me because I, I am not someone who's, uh, who's who's got that level of technical knowledge. Well, let me follow I, I wouldn't. Up. I wouldn't trust anything from Russian sources. So James did follow up and ask, uh, Dr. Clark, do you think Condine has any value in terms of content or was its only function to remove the topic from the portfolio? Good question. I like that question. Um, <clears throat> well, I think the second half of the question is correct, that basically Ron Haddo was told by his bosses, here's a bunch of money. We know that you're interested in this subject. It's causing us a load of public relations issues. You know, with, with the, the very fact that DI-55 is now in the public domain when it's supposed to be a secret agency, um, that the fact that we are responsible for this subject has caused us no end of problems, lots of security problems. Here is some money. Go away. Write a report on what we know about this subject. Uh, you can do whatever you want, Ron. Um, but as long as you come up with the conclusion that there's nothing we need to worry about and we can drop the subject and delete it from our task list, that's all we want in your conclusions. And I think Ron Haddo uh, went away and thought, well, you know, they've given me £50,000 or whatever it was they gave him to produce that report. He obviously had a personal interest in the subject, a bit like Nick Pope, but very differently to Nick Pope. He thought there was something there, that, that it was this kind of atmospheric plasmas. And this to answer this your question, the first half of your question, I do think it's got value because the fact that that Haddo in his report said um, that UFOs exist. I mean, when I when I got, I mean, I remember walking into the main building. This this is this is one thing that I, that really sticks in my mind from thirty years in this subject. I was actually invited to the MOD main building to meet the the last but one UFO desk officer, Linda um, 
Linda Unwin and her boss. And I went into the main building, sat at the UFO desk, which is just an ordinary desk like the one that I'm sat at. There was no Roswell aliens under the table or anything. And they gave me this report. And I opened it up and looked at the summary and it said, UFOs exist. There's no doubt about it. That was his conclusion. And I thought, this is amazing. You know, he's not saying that they're aliens, but he's saying that they do exist. What I don't understand about people who just dismiss that report is that because he, there's no evidence of aliens, they're not interested in it. And I think that is a very close-minded attitude to the subject. They're only interested in finding aliens. If there's no aliens, then it's all a whitewash and a cover-up. But in that report, he actually says not that UFOs is a load of nonsense, which is what most of the official output says over the years. He actually says that there is a phenomenon and it's something we don't understand and that scientists and military people should be pouring more resources into it. Now, to me, that is an amazing thing that someone, an intelligence officer, who's produced this report has come to that conclusion. I don't know whether that answers your question. No, no, it does. And it, it makes me think it's like Lou Elizondo, who I'm a big oh. fan of, gets praised for, for that very notion because he's very yeah. careful to not come out and say, aliens and you know all that it's it's very much that intelligence community language of yeah. these things exist we don't necessarily know what they are we've got some you know ideas but it's speculation um and scientists and the military and the mainstream should get more involved but there, but there is this perception that because the government and the military run the country that they know the answers to everything now COVID-19 alone shows that that's nonsense. Absolutely, look, how they, yeah. look, how, look how they were completely caught out. They spent all, they're spending all these billions of pounds of our te- tax money producing all these fantastic aircraft that can zoom around the planet in uh, Mach 5 or whatever it is and go to Mars. But they couldn't see the fact that despite the f- scientists were telling them we're going to be hit by a pandemic, you know, you need to make preparation for this. You need to pr- have, 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 have all these PPE and what have you. Despite being told all that, they did what? What they didn't? They didn't? They just didn't do anything, did they? And look at the mess that we're in as a result. So, so why then should we should we think that they would know the answer to the UFO phenomenon? And you said it's because it, they're the government. You said the word earlier that again, Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon have used themselves and and others. I know I mentioned them a lot, but other people as well uh, compartmentalized, and that yeah. they they themselves who have worked in government have come out and said people put too much faith in how how much the government much can so. do and how much they know and it would actually probably be equally as scary as finding aliens to find out how much the government's yeah. are actually maybe i don't know if incompetence is the right word but it's incompetence be, is the right word to be right more and more yeah i mean i'm a subscriber to the cock-up theory of history not the conspiracy theory of history and you know the, 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 yes there are conspiracies but they're usually about really small um things that have happened that only a small group of people know about that they've been able to conceal and you could not possibly conceal um, the ufo phenomenon because if aliens are visiting us um they must have most amazing sort of technological powers they can appear wherever they want around the earth no government is going to be able to conceal that from the public for very long you know so i just think all the, all we see um, in terms of what what is going on with government and ufos is simply people covering their bikes um, people covering up for um, cock-ups. And, and the, the whole way the Rendlesham incident was dealt with is a, is a good example of this, that basically they didn't have any money. So they didn't send anyone out to interview Hull and they didn't do proper follow-ups at the time. A, a missed opportunity. you know. And all they've done since is just cover their backs. 
I know you'll have at least made one of the listeners very happy, Nathan Atkinson, who asked that you discuss Pope, UK transparency, beliefs on the current UK situation, Calvine UFO, Ron Haddle, DI55. Oh, covered all that. Yeah, um, he has asked, though, um, your opinion on credible researchers in the UK. Who are some of the names that you would you would hang your hat on? Um, credible, yeah. Well, Other than yourself, of course. <laughs> well, I, I don't know whether I am a credible researcher. <laughs> I would, I would hope so. Well, this episode's not going out. <laughs> I only, I only know what I know, and I, I really have had to sort of. Co- I, I've just sort of made the Ministry of Defence files my little bag, because I, th- I think if you, once you start getting diverted into all these other things, you, you just you, you don't really achieve anything. So I've just concentrated. I'm into archives. That that's my thing. You know, I mean, as a journalist, that's where I used to go to get my stories because. You know, it was this tradition that on the 1st of January, this is before we had freedom of information, you might remember this, every 30 years, the government used to sort of release the files from 30 years ago. You know, what what Mrs. Thatcher's government were doing in 1980 and all this sort of thing. So that's what got me into archives. So in terms of um, reliable, good researchers, I mean, a lot of a lot of people have dropped out of the subject who I used to sort of uh, rate as, um, as good researchers. Joe McGonagall, for instance, um, is still around, but he did some fantastic research. Gary Anthony. Um, these are people that you, your listeners may never have heard of. Jenny Randalls did um, a load of really good work in the 1990s and published loads of books. Kevin McClure. Um, uh, I would put Nick Redfern up there as well. He did some, he, he was one of the pioneers of um, National Archives research. Uh, there's a, a guy from Scotland called um, James Easton. Have you come across him, Andy? I've heard the name. Yeah, he did some of the original. In fact, he, James Easton, was the person who actually dug out those original statements from Rendlesham, you know, the, the handwritten statement by John Burroughs mm-hmm. and Jim Penniston. He was the one who got who found um, where they were and got them released. He never gets acknowledged. Um, so that, that's about five or six people. There's, I mean, <laughs> dozens of others. Paul Fuller, um, who, who was did did a lot of work on the crop circle phenomena? Gloria Dixon, who's from your part of the world, Andy. Have you come across her? She's the director of investigations for Bufora. I've not, no, no. Gloria Gloria Heather Dixon. Um, she she's she's been a stalwart of the subject. These these people never get mentioned. Um, and again, it's all part of the fact that we've got into this celebrity ufology and where everything is Rendlesham and none of the other stories seem to sort of make any mention anymore No, hopefully some of those names have helped out for other, uh, not just Nathan but others who might want to yeah. look up some of those too um, Paul, it wasn't so much of a, well, it was a question but you've answered it with uh, the, the discussion around Nick Pope's role at the MOD uh, and recent speculations um, Dave Smethurst's last question um do you think it likely the personnel involved in the incident at Rendlesham have got it all so wrong? Doesn't Occam's razor suggest something hard to explain along the lines they said happened? Aren't the more conventional explanations more ludicrous or at least more out of step with the facts? Now, you've probably covered that in, in what you've said with it being... Yeah, well, Occam's razor suggests that the simplest explanation is always the best one and that there's nothing to be gained from going to the, going looking at... Um, really long-winded um, explanations that invoke all kinds of things that we don't need to bring into the solution. So actually, Occam's razor suggests that the simplest explanation, therefore the, the fireball in the forest, the lighthouse, um, stars, all the usual things, that's where you should go. And that invoking time travelers and aliens and things isn't necessary. So Occam's razor actually suggests the opposite. 
Um, he, he also did ask, though, and I was going to ask this slight, in a slightly different way anyway, what do you think about the recent tic-tac evidence and the statements of Senator Harry Reid on the subject? Um, well, the tic-tac evidence is... The, the, the videos and the, the, the accounts are fascinating, but, I mean, just talking to some of the people... I, you know, I was involved in that show, The Unidentified, and I think they did an interview with me at the National Archives as part of that, and just talking to some of the people involved, everybody in the background seemed to be saying that their view of it, having seen all this stuff and spoken to the people involved, is it's, it's a military thing. It's not aliens. I mean, that, that whole thing about the object that rose out of the uh, out of the Pacific Ocean that these people were were, um, were observing in the fighter aircraft, that suggests to me some kind of um, high, high-tech drone that was being deployed from a submarine. And, and, and it actually happened in one of the areas where they test all this stuff. You know, so I, I just think it's, it's another example of compartmentalization that one part of the military that's testing these high-tech stuff isn't telling the other part of the military who are sending out aircraft to um you know to investigate and, and and if you were deploying something that was brand new that looked unusual what a good way of testing how um let's say you were going to deploy one of these tic-tac things over russia for instance you wouldn't just do that would you you'd want to test it on your own pilots first and see how they reacted to it you know so i i, I haven't seen anything in any of this evidence that's been um, produced in the in the USA that that to me looks otherworldly. All of it to me looks like a advanced aircraft and advanced drone technology that's been tested on their own pilots. So can I ask then, when when Chris Mellon and Lou Elizondo both come out and say this isn't ours, this is not American, Russian, Chinese, this isn't in the inventory, uh, are they either? <laughs> do you think that's then untruthful, or is that just? Are they misguided, in your opinion? Well, they work for the military, don't they? And I would take everything that they say on that subject with a bucket load of salt, you know, because, I mean, Chris Mellon will know what that thing is. He he is from a, you know, he's he's a very high up person in the defence intelligence establishment. I think he knows exactly what it was that was seen. But for whatever reason, the US military find it useful to sort of spread this idea that these things that are flying around are alien craft because they know, and this is, this is, there's a long history of this, and if you don't believe it, watch the video Mirage Men by Mark Pilkington. In fact, I should have mentioned Mark when in that list of, um, of really high-quality uh, researchers in the past. He went to America, did a documentary, and it, you can watch it. I think it might even be on Netflix. It's on did YouTube, book, actually, I believe. It's on yeah. YouTube. Watch that program because he basically was looking at this whole subject in the 1990s when there were people like Bob Lazar and who's that other guy who, who, who was involved. I can't remember his name now, but the whole, the whole documentary is based about upon someone like Louis Elizondo who was involved in the UFO subject and who was definitely working for the military. And he was, he was misleading people, shall we say, by suggesting that things were alien when he knew very well that they weren't alien. And th- this is what the intelligence services do. You know, they, they send people on 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 um, false trails, and they set them up with information that they know they will. I mean, the whole MJ twelve thing, for instance, the, the whole thing that was cooked up about the Rendlesham, uh, it's not Rendlesham, the Roswell crash, supposedly. Um, all these fake documents, they were they, there's good evidence that they were concocted by the very people that Chris Mellon used to work for. 
and that they were just planted in the UFO community. This is at the time when the, the first stealth aircraft was being introduced. And it was like, what a good idea to make the Russians think that we've got crashed alien technology. That'll get them worried, won't it? You know, and it worked really well. And they don't need to do much because they know that the UFO co community just swallows this stuff. It's just looking for, you know, put out some fake documents. We can knock them off in one afternoon and we can just give them to somebody, you know, in the UFO community. And, uh, and the UFO community will do our work for us. And, and, and that, I think, is what's going on at the moment in America. I think there's something going on to, to make people think that these things are alien and that the American um, establishment is spending all this money on, on these special investigations when I, th I think it's a total, it, it's, a, it's a military industrial complex that's creating these things and testing it on its own people and it's being portrayed as something otherworldly. That's my conclusion. That's fair. Thank you to the listeners for those questions. Okay, so on to the quickfire round to finish off then. Uh, David, the quickfire round uh, is going to be a list of some of them you've touched on, names, events, things, okay. and the U UFO uh, topic. And you can give a few words or a little bit more. It's, it's up to you how long you want to spend on them. The first one being Lou Elizondo. Um, well, seems a, seems a nice chap. <laughs> um, he's, he's, he does a lot of talking, but uh, uh, so far he hasn't actually produced anything evidential as far as I can see. That's, you know, going, to, that's bit, going to upset some listeners. A bit like Nick Pope in that when he was when he first emerged on the subject as like a government insider, he was promising, yeah, you know, there's all these secret files that are going to be released that will prove this, that and the other. Here we are. Um, 20 odd years later the files have been produced but it's still not pr provided any evidence of anything that he was talking about in the first place okay next I one predict is... this i predict the same thing will happen with louis elizondo but despite that i still think he's a he's an interesting entertaining character i will get you back on in six months and we'll discuss <laughs> the uap task force stuff that comes out then and, and see i look forward to it i look forward to it certainly will um next up to the stars academy very controversial regardless of recent times but in the last week or so obviously some news has come out entertainment that's all i've got to say <laughs> and do you know what a week or two ago i would have come back on you with that but it was one of the key words that luella zondo used with george knapp as to to why it looks like he alluded to their parting ways but but why would someone like louis elizondo and the other guy chris mellon get themselves um, wrapped up with an organization like that if they want the subject that they're promoting as serious to be taken seriously that's I'm my sure, question i'm sure Lou might answer that in the next month or so as, as things kind of change and evolve, I would hope. Next up, you touched on, uh, but I'd like to hear just a little bit more on it because it's an interesting character and I like your opinion on this sort of stuff. Bob Lazar. Um, storyteller. You know, we were talking about storytellers earlier and he, he's a classic example. You know, if, if, if he was like a... If, it, if, we, if we took him back 500 years, he'd be a travelling minstrel who would be telling stories about, um, you know, sort of having visited fairyland and, you know, tried to steal the cup of the Queen of the Fairies and brought it back, that kind of thing. <laughs> Next up is UFO or UAP. What do you think is the more appropriate term now? Well, I can understand why UAP is being used by the military. But UFO is, has got cultural significance, hasn't it? Everyone recognises UFO. And if you go back in time, there was a time when UFOs were called flying saucers. You remember that? Is there any of us old enough to remember that in the 1950s? And the reason why, um, I think it was Captain Edward Ruppelt of Project Blue Book, he 
was the guy who coined UFO, unidentified flying object, because he wanted a term that would take get away from all the sort of loony contactees who claimed that they'd been to Mars and Venus and all the rest of it. So he, he coined UFO to get away from all that. And so, and then UFO became the same as flying saucer, didn't it? When you when when UF you mention UFO to people now, they don't think, oh, it's a military term that means an object in the sky that we can't identify. They think aliens from outer space. So it's exactly the same as flying saucer. And I think UAP will go the same way. I don't think UAP has got um it, it's not something that trips off the tongue, is it? So no. people will, will continue to refer to UFOs. Next one is just summarize for us your thoughts on Rendlesham. Um, uh, it's it's the case that's got everything. <laughs> it, but it, although it's made out to be like fantastically evidential, in actual fact, the devil is in the detail, and the more you sort of pare down within it, the more it becomes just like any other UFO case. And the last one to you: What does disclosure mean? Nothing, because disclosure's already happened, and. The fact is, is that we already know everything there is to know about UFOs. It's just that people don't want to accept it. Let me ask you one more yes or no question that I don't have written down here. Do you believe aliens exist? Yes, undoubtedly. But the real question is, are they intelligent aliens and are they visiting us in flying saucers? Well, and the I next think one... the, answer is, the answer to that is no. <laughs> Okay, not yet. But I am I am absolutely confident that extraterrestrial life exists or existed elsewhere in the universe or in our own galaxy. There's no doubt about it. Excellent. David, that's all for the questions and interview. Thank you very much. Do you want to just let the listeners know how they can get in touch with you, how they can find your blog as well? Yeah, um, well, my blog's easy to find. It's drdavidclark.co.uk. Um, and if they want to email me, my email address is furnival.news at googlemail.com. But you can find that via the website as well. Excellent. That's great. David, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And I look forward to doing it again soon in six months, at least, if not sooner. No, no. Thank you, Andy. I really enjoyed it. And a, and a very happy New Year, COVID-free, hopefully, New Year uh, to you and all your listeners. Thank you, David. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little bit. Meditative game of fate full on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I nearly kissed myself. I 
and I climbed out the window after the elf, and I woke up in my bed, and there was something on my head, and everything was weird, and everything was wet. I called out to my boys, they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems, and they think I should take care of me, and I don't know what it is, because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think I'd be against you and me and us and 